The Invisible Masterpiece by Hans Belting Introduction A masterpiece cannot be invisible. If it were, we could not discuss it. So I use the term as a metaphor for the idea of a work that comprises art in the absolute. A state beyond the reach of every tangible artwork. The book's title, therefore, does not refer to any specific work, but only to an unattainable ideal, a work in which a dream of art, or art as a dream, is incorporated. People used to imagine just such a work in much the same way that they imagined the art of previous ages to have been far superior to that of their own day, or projected how marvelous art would be in the future. Such musings and arguments were fueled by optimism and doubt, both of which called existing works into question, measuring them against the far superior idea of the work of art. My inquiry into the invisible masterpiece was inspired by Honoré de Balzac's Le Chef d'œuvre Inconnu, 1831, a prophetic warning that has by turns unnerved and encouraged artists, not least Cézanne, Gauguin, and Picasso, ever since it appeared. Balzac's story concerns a masterpiece worked on over many years by the elderly artist Frenhofer, a painting Frenhofer frequently comments on approvingly to his friends, yet steadfastly refuses to show them. Finally, he relents, but on confronting it, they are totally bewildered. They can see paint on a canvas, but no subject. Frenhofer has repeatedly effaced and repainted the work over the years because he sought to realize an artwork that triumphed over reality and the constraints imposed on every work that could be said to be finished or completed. For the self-deluding Frenhofer, the act of creation had become more important than the product. So the long-hidden work was not, after all, Frenhofer's masterpiece, but a failed attempt to make art itself visible in an authoritative and definitive epiphany. While in real works, art necessarily becomes an object, the ideal of art had to be released from such reification in order to serve the unbounded imagination. As long as no one was able to create the kind of work that qualified as absolute art, painters and sculptors could continue in the hope that one day this remote goal would be realized. I'm not using this fiction of an invisible masterpiece to disparage the art of the last two centuries, or to suggest to the reader, as some have done in recent years, that modern art has failed. I am not concerned with questions of quality or value judgments. My aim is to draw attention to that constant restlessness, so characteristic of modern artistic creativity, and which has driven it forward at such a breathless pace.
The modern idea of art gained mastery over works themselves, and as a result, fed the unceasing production of yet more works, none of which, however, could be anything more than a milestone on the long road to an art of the future. So my subject is the ideal of absolute art, which persistently drove artistic production, but always eluded it. This unrealizable aspiration in art is often confused with a compulsion to produce something truly new and original, whereas in fact, the new is often only a mask for an ideal that is still seeking its place in the world of art. The work's idea, the artwork as an entity of its own, is therefore distinct from the general idea of art, even though this may strike some readers as an arbitrary discrimination. This book, in fact, is not about the history of modern art, for then its narrative would necessarily have to take a very different road. What I intend to do is to trace in art criticism as well as in art itself, the preoccupation with the changing status of the work of art, including its ultimately hyperbolic concept. In the 19th century, masterpiece was a means of speaking of an absolute work, which of course remained an unfulfilled ideal. But soon the term masterpiece became devalued as a result of its excessive and arbitrary use, not least as a term of flattery. So the 20th century's avant-garde abandoned an exhausted term that no longer served the idea of absolute art, since the latter now defied the scope of any single work. But even in the 19th century, the term masterpiece implied a dream that transcended the individual work. In the discourse on modern art, the anachronistic idea of a masterpiece seemed to betray the experimental project of the avant-garde, for the anachronism left art the victim of an aura, as Walter Benjamin called it, that was nothing short of sacred. It is therefore necessary to go back to the 19th century and reconstruct a discussion in which the masterpiece represented simply a dramatic way of speaking of the idea of the work. An absolute masterpiece was not an excellent work. It was an impossible one. Even when people borrowed that concept as a yard for all actual works, they could only permit the ideal to exist in preliminary blueprints or to loom invisibly behind serial attempts as deliberately unsuccessful circumscriptions. Thereafter, the celebrated works of the past were viewed with a mixture of melancholy and frustration, for they seemed to have attained everything that was denied to modern art. Artists saw the Mona Lisa, so deeply revered by the public, as a mere artistic fetish from which they had to liberate themselves. Not only did the artists insist that 
such so-called masterpieces were myths rather than works, in other words of owing their fame not to the achievement they represented, but to a fiction. They also revolted against a false myth of the work of art in general, that is, a false myth of what a work was to be. The cult of the Mona Lisa conjured an arbitrary experience in front of the work of art that many generations of modern artists personally rejected. The Mona Lisa was not merely a work, it also embodied a phantom. It was anything but an invisible masterpiece, even if, in this particular case, the cliché was more visible than the work itself. 20th century artists not only had a different conception of what a work of art was, they often wholly rejected the idea of the completed and definitive piece as the proper goal of their creative efforts. So these debates and the programs and manifestos of many avant-garde movements questioned the idea of the work as such. The concept of a work seems to us today so traditional and as ancient that, in our view, the 19th century appears to have inherited it as a legacy from earlier times, and that modern artists continue to struggle with an ideal that was no longer of their own taste. The fact that the history of the museum coincides with the history of modern art seems to support this assumption. Benjamin's critique of the aura, which he directed against the museum piece as a unique object, backs the same view. This book sets out to show that, on the contrary, the concept of the autonomous work was of modern invention. Due to a crisis originating in a new estimation of art, a painter's work was expected to represent a lofty ideal that as yet defied any certain definition. Now, when people praised a work by the divine Raphael, they celebrated their modern gaze, not Raphael's. Such a work re-emerged in a modern history of art, a history remarkably different from the traditional lives of individual artists. One visited museums in order to worship famous works, whose subject matter had ceased to be of interest. A new type of art discourse guided not only the viewing, but the production of art, too. Any given work was expected to compensate for the loss of a reliable and generally valid definition. And so the modern artist's struggle was not merely a continuation of the artist's perennial effort of self-expression. It had the task of demonstrating a conception of art that had general validity. From now on, a new work was by definition a kind of program that was judged as an argument for a general theory of art. This is the darker side of the bright dawn of autonomous art. For the new freedom imposed on artists, 
the burden of producing results for justifying art. The creative artist, who ultimately could only turn out to be either a genius or a total failure, felt constrained by a positively ontological duty to express the truth of art. The work became, in André Malraux's phrase, the ultimate Monet de l'absolu. Arthur Schopenhauer provided a philosophical analysis of the modern idea of the work of art in Pararga and Paralympomena, 1851. The separation of form from matter is part of the character of the aesthetic work of art, precisely because it is the function of the work of art to make us cognizant of a platonic idea. The form liberates itself from the matter, just as an idea detaches itself from an object, which is what the work in its material aspect is. Schopenhauer left open the precise definition of the idea, which is why he wrote of a platonic idea. But others have understood it to mean the idea of art itself. Schopenhauer saw the work of art, though of physical substance, as coming close to an idea as it emerges, as an object that has already passed through a subject, that is, through the imagination of its maker. The idea is general, whereas things in the real world can only signify something particular. True, a work of art is also merely an individual object, but the true work of art leads us away from any individual experience to something we can see in many things or works, the form or idea as such. The form acts only upon the eye, and this effect makes it appear as the agent of an idea. If, then, the modern work of art was always in thrall to an idea of art that made it into the representative of that idea, it is hardly surprising that it soon found itself in continuing crisis. The fact that it was more a demonstration than a work explains why artists eventually decided to free themselves from all the dead weight associated with the artwork. We tend to forget that the growing resistance from 1960 onwards to the idea that art production required years of training was not an accident in the history of modern art, but merely brought out into the open problems that had long been inherent. Some commentators have seen this as marking the end of modern art, hence the contemptuous label, recent art, that is sometimes applied, notably in French criticism, to the art of the last few decades. I take a wholly different view. To me, the new kinds of artistic practice, performance art, conceptual art, or video installation, reveal a determination to be free from the contradictions imposed by the compulsion 
to produce works of art, a compulsion that had always subjected even the most radical avant-garde artists to the tyranny of the convincing single work. They also originally were meant as a rebellion against the art market, which had forced even artists of an anarchistic bent to deal in the currency of the work, so that a work seemed ultimately to be serving the art market rather than art itself. By writing texts or making stage appearances, artists sought to avoid producing works, but without thereby ceasing to create art. It was simply art by other means, free from the canon and the constraints associated with work. A work of art had anyway tended to forfeit the freedom of the creative process the moment the artist declared the work to be finished. Where hitherto the artist had expressed himself through the authority of a work, he now tried to fill the void that replaced the work with his own body or with the living world word. If he did continue to produce works, these were in effect critical commentaries on what he now regarded merely as the ideology of the work. One need only to invoke a name, like that of Marcel Duchamp, to indicate the degree of reflection that the, the debate on the work of art had reached by the early 20th century. One aspect of this reflection was the critical attitude adopted towards that hybrid entity comprising the work, the tangible object, and art, the intangible idea. Duchamp confronted the art world, not with parodies, but with emblems of the former work idea. His were not works in the usual sense. They were performances that enabled him to question the traditional idea of the work. Prior to Duchamp, Manet attempted a painted theory of the work in his Olympia, a revision of the traditional museum Venus, and turned pictures like the bar at the Folie Bergère into a mirror of modern life. At an advanced age, Picasso deconstructed his own working canon when he painted more than 50 variations on an old masterpiece, thereby dissolving it into a series of individual aperçus. I, ref I prefer to view these critical statements or painted revolts as an uninterrupted feature of modern art, rather than in terms of a historical chronology or as a personal trait. This is essential if one attempts a conceptual history of the modern work of art. The conflicts about the work, in fact, far from emerging only in retrospect, were an integral part of the history of the work of art in the modern period, the era of the museum and the avant-garde. From the very outset, the modern work took on the responsibility of representing a most elusive concept of art. 
Since the Romantic period, there has been no theory of art with generally accepted rules and values. The burden, the burden of proof in the name of art fell to the individual work. This is why programs and manifestos were protecting groups of artists. A group could offer mutual support in the uncertain adventure of art. But to think along these lines, one has to be willing to isolate the project of a work and the history of the idea of a work as a topic in its own right. This means paying greater attention to the utopian nature of modern art as a general feature of the modern age, which conflicts, which conflicts with the finite and limited character of a given work. True, there have been, there have always been works that seem to anticipate an art of the future and point ahead beyond themselves. But this anticipation of a meaning they would gain only in the future actually intensified the conflict with their own finality as works. This dichotomy between vision and reality makes the artwork an apt paradigm of the modern period. If, if visual artists were tormented by the problems of legitimizing the work, poets and novelists recognized the same difficulties. In Dr. Faustus, 1947, Thomas Mann gives eloquent expression in a conversation between the narrator and the composer Leverkuhn to his doubt as to whether the work, in this case the novel, could bear true witness to the experience of its own time. Leverkuhn ironically remarks that our experience is the actual agent of the work idea, not the idea of a particular work, but the idea of the opus itself, the object and harmonic creation complete. In a work there is much seeming and sham, one could even say that, as a work, it is fiction in its own right. Its ambition is to make one believe that it is not made, but born. But that is a delusion. Never did a work come like that. It is labor. Labor for fiction's sake. Leverkuhn therefore asks himself, whether this little game is still permissible, still intellectually possible, whether the work as such, the construction, self-sufficing and in harmony with itself, still stands in any legitimate relation to the total insecurity and lack of harmony of our social situation, whether all fiction, even the most beautiful, has not today become a lie. The Farewell to Apollo, The Birth of the Louvre Our notion of the work of art has its origin in the concept of the unique masterpiece, an idea that gained currency when the first museums were founded. Revered icons or works of star quality were crucial to justify the existence of the temples of art that bourgeois culture demanded. 
Although it was the museum's function to display the entire panorama of art, not every work possessed the aura of great art. Only specific individual works had this. Soon after the Louvre was founded as a national public gallery in 1793, a dispute broke out over whether the aim was to create a museum of masterpieces or a museum of art history. One side wanted a temple dedicated to timeless masterpieces, the other a home offering a chronological survey of art throughout history. Thus, one wanted the museum to preserve the purity of the artistic ideal, while the other saw its role as documenting art's progress over the centuries. Admiring great art seemed to be incompatible with scrutinizing the whole history of art, because the latter process inevitably relativized all works. Closely associated with this controversy was the idea of imitation. The defenders of the masterpiece saw the museum as a school of taste, while the promoters of art history envisaged it as a school of history, in which every artist who had made a contribution should have his or her place. It is no coincidence that the connoisseurs of the Ancien Régime subscribed to an elitist ideal that they wanted to share only with artists, whereas the advocates of art history insisted on a museum for everyone in which the whole spectrum of art would be represented. What was overlooked in this controversy was that masterpieces were also part of the history of art. Shortly after the founding of the Louvre, its directors were forced to acknowledge that art appreciation had focused far too narrowly on ancient masterpieces, that is, on Greek and Roman sculptures. This realization necessitated changes in the nature of the museum as a whole. The farewell to Apollo, the Apollo Belvedere, in Paris from 1798 to 1815, also marked a departure from a timeless ideal of art, not just a decline in the prestige of a particular statue. The historicist view of culture included the belief that there was such a thing as historical progress. The works that now came to be regarded as masterpieces were paintings from the past centuries of European art. Thus, the monopoly formerly held by antiquities sculptures was broken. The Louvre was no longer solely a collection of ancient art, as its predecessors in Rome had been. Its upper floor displayed the newer arts, its lower floor those of the ancient world. At the beginning of the modern period, the masterpiece, art's most profound achievement, had swiftly established itself as the symbol of a new art appreciation. The didactic ideal had been the guiding principle of the old academies. But as art came to be viewed in terms of absolutes, it began to defy any clear definition. Its nature had to be apprehended via masterpieces. Miracles that could no longer be explained or taught by means of rules and which transformed the creative act into an unfathomable mystery.
the veneration of art replaced that of beauty. Even Quatremer de Cancy, a partisan of the old school, could only express wonder in his letters to Miranda regarding the metaphysical debate about absolute and relative beauty. People are more certain of what beauty is not than of what it actually is. The presence of perfect works concealed the absence of a viable idea of absolute art. The ideal work could no longer be described in, in terms of an ideal means of producing it. The public's response to masterpieces was no longer informed by expertise, for now empathy prevailed. Masterpieces, those surviving specimens of excellence, stood firm against the surging tide of an ever more historical view of cultural production. When the Louvre, formerly a royal palace, reopened its doors in 1793 as a museum, the people triumphantly seized control of an artistic heritage that was formerly the preserve of court and church. It was now the property of the nation. Beyond France's borders, however, the victorious revolutionary armies chose, in the ringing phrases used in the National Assembly in 1794, to rescue the immortal works of art from the tyrants and bring them home to the motherland of art and genius. When the Louvre finally became a supranational museum, it was fulfilling the Enlightenment's dream of bringing culture to all in a République de l'Esprit. Although those utopian ideals were short-lived, it was because of them that old collections were not destroyed, but instead were exhibited in a museum that was open to everyone. Under Napoleon's rule as first consul, Art quickly came to represent not so much the greatness of man as the triumph of France. The homage given to the masterpieces carried to France from Italy in 1798 also had the aim, as was declared at the time, of immortalizing our own epoch. This act of plunder paralleled the process by which ancient Rome had seized the artistic heritage of Greece an event that seemed in retrospect to have laid the foundations of Rome's universal status. Moreover, art had become a symbol of the freedom in whose name victory was pursued, and so it could be used to make Napoleon's crude war of conquest appear in a more credible light. Before long, the revolutionary state was transformed into an empire, and the new sovereign wished to rule over a history whose inheritor he felt himself to be. When, after reorganization, the Louvre's Gallery of Antiquities was reopened on 15 August 1803, the main portal bore the proud inscription Musée Napoléon. At six in the morning, three hours before the public was due to be admitted, the first consul viewed the new rooms there at the hour when the troops were inspected. On reaching the Venus de Medici, he was presented by the Louvre's director, Vivant Dinon, 
with a medallion commemorating the arrival of this masterpiece, as the Journal de Débat reported. Together with an impression of the statue, the medallion bore the inscription, Osa la victoire. Our victory is dedicated to the arts. This classical Venus, pillaged from the Uffizi, was described in the museum guidebook as an incomparable work that, in the general estimation of Europe, is alone in sharing the celebrity of the Apollo Belvedere. No other work had been more rapturously received in Paris than the Apollo, which had attracted the admiration of the world when it stood in the Vatican Belvedere's courtyard. At its installation in Paris, Napoleon ceremonially unveiled a bronze inscription that gave not only the date of its installation, but also that of its seizure. In this new setting, in which the Apollo looked like the brother of the Diana from Fontainebleau, the statue was subjected to aesthetic comparisons that soon led to doubts about its supposedly unique quality. Ten years later, it was not the Apollo, but the Venus de Medici that was accorded first place among the most celebrated works that have come down to us from the ancients, as Joseph Levallet wrote in his Louvre catalogue. Two months after the opening of the Musée Napoléon, Vivant Denon devoted his inaugural speech before the Institute entirely to classical statues. He called them the true masterpieces of art and congratulated himself and everyone else on the fact that they exist. However, he went on to note that art declines once it has been brought to a certain degree of perfection. Then it can be spoken of only in the language of feeling, in which there is always a sense of loss. The new museum was initially presented as a museum of ancient art. In his speech, Dinan conducted his audience through the rooms that housed classical works, finally reaching the Venus de Medici, which to him was the apogee of all masterpieces. She is only a woman, but she is the woman whose perfection is elsewhere found only in scattered fragments an allusion to classical legends about art. Her totality could only be conceived by a genius. It has never been possible to describe her without doing her an injustice. For Denon, the reason why masterpieces could not be described was because the ideal projected onto them was no longer explicable. Only in fear and trembling can one venture a few remarks about her perfections. The conception of the museum suffered from the same inherent contradiction as the period's notion of art. The desire to trace out the historical development of art was compromised by the fact that art was admired as the embodiment of a perfection that, it was feared, was slipping away. The course of history revealed a beauty that was quite distinct from any claims of an artistic marvel 
that transcended history. The new history-shackled point of view contradicted the philosophical ontology of the preceding generation by its inevitable relativism. In the Musée Français catalogue, the declared aim was that of discovering not the rules, but the mysteries inherent in works of art. In order to enhance the degree of admiration that these works inevitably inspire. At the dawn of Romanticism, the productions de Genie took on a fresh significance. The solitary creation supplanted the earlier ideal of an academic art, and academicism was soon understood as a mortal sin in art. The new myth of the genius merely obscured the fact that art became a venture undertaken as the individual's own risk. At the time, the works that were recognized as masterpieces dominated both the rooms of the museums and the mu museum catalogs. Whether as the centerpiece of a museum or as the climax of a written history of art, the masterpiece was inevitably described in contradictory terms. Masterpieces were the products of history, and yet they triumphantly transcended history as they gradually acquired a status that placed them outside time. But perfection, once achieved, was necessarily followed by a decline that was seen as an inexorable law of history. This apparent truth was acknowledged even by ancient writers on art, who thereby subject subjected themselves to aesthetic norms that were not at all rooted in history itself. Masterpieces were historical products in a double sense. They were born in history, but they also lived on as a result of the history of their interpretation. History was the context in which they had not only been created, but also admired, imitated, and misunderstood. Their fame was itself historical, so that it was becoming difficult to say anything new about them, as a writer in the Musée Français complained as early as 1809. Instead, the intention now was to present a complete overview of the history of art, in which everything should find its place. In the early days of the Louvre, the policy was to acquire only works as were suitable to serve as models for artists to study. Only a decade later, in 1807, the public was being assured that the restrictive barriers associated with connoisseurship had been dismantled, and that even works that did not qualify as examples for artists to study would now be included. The idea of imitation was based on the assumption that the artistic ideal had been realized at some point in history. All that was needed was to find one's way back to that ideal. And with all the masterpieces of mankind gathered together in the Louvre, this seemed the perfect moment to do so. Imitation offered the prospect of a historical dynamic quite different from mere retrospection. 
Nevertheless, this optimistic view was soon discredited by those who pointed out that it promoted a sterile view of art. And so the masterpieces came to be praised as inimitable because there was no longer any wish to imitate them. Artists instead turned to real nature. But for the connoisseurs, great art was henceforth to be found only in the past. The Ideal Museum The notion of an ideal museum had always been bound up with Rome. Rome itself had everything that people looked for in such a museum. The masterpieces of classical and modern art, and also the actual places associated with the only history worthy of the name. In addition, Rome then possessed the only museums that deserved the name, the Cap Capitoline and Vatican Museums. In the partly imaginary scenes painted by Giovanni Panini, the city as a whole was one vast museum. There, Winkelmann had conducted his research, Menz had painted his canvases, and Cardinal Albani had assembled his collection. Rome was where so many men of genius had made art the very essence of their lives. When, therefore, the city became the main target for the French confiscation of art, it looked to contemporaries as if Rome was going to be re relocated in Paris, and there was bitter controversy as to whether it was right that the city should lose its finest works, when Paris could surely never adequately take its place. In his letters to Miranda, Quatre Mères de Crancy deplored the forcible transplantation of Italy's art treasures. His criticisms went unanswered, since the opposing side preferred deeds to words. But the masterpieces in Rome that were about to be carried off came to the attention of the general public for the first time as a result of this very public controversy. Katmer, Francis Winkelmann, acted for a long time as the arbiter of his nation in matters of art, precisely because, as a supporter of the old school, he followed modern developments with a critical eye. In the letters, he argued passionately for Rome to continue to be the école centrale of Europe, since there alone could the survival of the classical ideal of art be guaranteed. If Europe was being transformed into a republic of the arts and sciences, Rome was a supranational city that would not be subject to political pressures. For a time, it seemed as though the future of the newly created museum might be steered in any one of several directions. But those who believed this were even then mistaken. The rise of the nation-states favored a determination to assert a strong historical identity, for which a museum was the ideal vehicle, a museum that would make art into an emblem of the sovereignty of the state. To envisage a supranational museum dedicated to the art lovers of all nations 
was therefore a delusion. From today's perspective, it is certainly hard to understand the Roman position vis-à-vis -vis the ambitions of the pro-French party. The issue was less about whose property the artworks were than with where, by their nature, they truly belonged. In other words, the approach was not legalistic, but historical. Compared with Rome, the Louvre was a wholly artificial construct, a building in the midst of a modern city where works could be imprisoned far from their rightful setting. For us, this kind of museum had long been the norm, but in those days, the threat of a prison crammed with indiscriminately assembled works of art aroused deep repugnance among people who could not yet see the point of a mere survey of art's history. Naturally, Quatremer was speaking for the elite of true amateurs, those art lovers who had the means to spend years, if they wished, in Rome, and not for the new kind of public that had just emerged and which contented itself with a Sunday visit to the Louvre. He was uncomfortable with that public and always kept his distance from it. But Catherine knew very well that a new panorama of art might be created in Paris that would sound the death knell of his old ideal of art, a panorama of all the European schools in which Rome would be reduced to nothing more than local significance. He therefore opposed the idea of people availing themselves in an undirected way of an overcrowded museum that would inevitably destroy artistic standards and undermine true values. Once again, he referred to great masterpieces in order to explain his position. Their number in any given genre is as small as that of men of genius. That number can be increased only in proportion to the diminution of their reputation. Thus, Catlemer warned against surrendering to a complete panorama of art history that was destined to extinguish any true sense of art. To exhibit everything, he argued, would be to neutralize everything. It should not be imagined that a warehouse containing all schools of painting could possibly have the same impact as is achieved by those schools in their native setting. And of course, the Louvre did finally become just such a warehouse, presenting the totality of art history. The museum as a reality. Nonetheless, it took quite some time for the demand for a complete rethinking of art and history to be heard in the Louvre because of the extremely narrow view of art that still prevailed. The antiquities exhibited, exhibited on the ground floor conveyed the sense that here were the foundations of the modern art that occupied the upper floor. But this so-called modern art was restricted to what Le Vallée in his Louvre catalogue called Le Beau Temps, from the Renaissance of the arts to our present day. In all other periods, the arts because they did not conform to classical rules, 
had amounted to nothing. Between the two artistic epochs that the Louvre's visitors saw in chronological sequence, yawned the gaping hole in the history of art that no one deemed worthy of study until Emmerich David boldly bridged that span of nine centuries with his exhibition of monuments and relics from the Middle Ages. Right at the start, in the vestibule leading to the collection of antiquities, visitors encountered a series of ceiling decorations that presented the mythic origins of sculpture in an extravagantly mythological visual imagery that clearly harked back to the Baroque. In the ceiling painting dating from 1802, Jean-Simon Berthelemy had depicted the creation of man. Prometheus had formed him, and Minerva descends from the sky to infuse him with a soul. He is raising himself up on a plinth, in a pose inspired by the creation of Adam on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. The program derives from the archaeologist Ennio Visconti, who, in the Musée Francais catalogue, had prominently associated Prometheus as mankind's first sculptor, with the birth of ancient sculpture. This vision of art's history was continued in the four roundels at the corners, which assigned the four schools of sculpture to four countries, each personified in a figure pointing to a masterpiece created in that country. Egypt points to the statue of Memnon, Greece to the Apollo Belvedere, Italy to Michelangelo's Moses, and France to Pierre Puget's Milo. So visitors gazed up at a painted treatise, which was elucidated in the museum's catalogue. There, too, the history of art opened with a creation myth. Thus primed, Visitors set off to view the famous originals, the Apollo, the Venus de Medici, and the Lacoon. On the upper floor, the approach was more pragmatic, following the decision in 1799 to use the Grand Galerie for a chronological display of the various schools of painting. In 1811, this display was divided into nine sections, leading up to the climax as represented by the Italian schools. This so-called visual history of art, arranged in a way that conveyed a particular perception of the subject, offered an overview that was not available in books at the time. On the occasion of Napoleon's second wedding in 1810, all those invited to attend paraded past the paintings, as Benjamin Zeke's engraving records. Tracing, as it were, the notional path of art history as they accompanied the emperor to the marriage altar set up in the Salon Carré. Among the host of visitors drawn from across Europe, Friedrich Schlegel soon gazed in awe at the collection of over 1,000 paintings and, standing before the assembled collection of works by Raphael, 
reverently studied the gradual evolution of a great artistic mind. The new fascination for exploring the course of art history replaced the old-style appreciation of the work of art. This fascination for exhibiting art history is partly explained by the fact that photography was unknown. But the Louvre's management did its best by publishing from 1803 onwards a folio edition of the catalogue with more than 500 engravings of a quality that set a new standard. Through this catalogue, a museum in book form, the collection became known as a canon of art history. According to an accompanying text, the intention was that works that are unique and can be admired only at a single location by a small number of people should be made available for the enjoyment of the public at large. But the true technical reproducibility of the artwork, to which Walter Benjamin has referred, had not yet arrived. These monochrome engravings, a medium in their own right, exerted an influence on aesthetic taste that should not be underestimated. They formed a common denominator that made different works of art appear more alike than they actually were. People even spoke of a synthesis of sculpture and painting that only printmaking seemed capable of achieving. To compensate for the arbitrary selection of engravings, ambitious introductions to the history of art were published. These began with the Egyptians, or even with the time prior to the flood, but generally did not advance beyond the Italian Renaissance. A large number of authors collaborated on the six-volume Musée Français, while the ten volumes of its rival, the Galerie du Musée Napoléon, were all written by Joseph Lavallée. The two catalogues also strove to outdo each other in the engravings, which gave markedly different impressions of, for instance, that miracle of art, the Venus de Medici. In the Musée Francais, the reverently low viewpoint adopted by the engraver lifts the figure into an artistic heaven like an apotheosis of herself, while her rounded limbs symbol a vitality that was avidly sought for in the cold marble. Now that two centuries of archaeological research have irretrievably diminished the prestige of these statues, they seem more beautiful, more alive in the engraved prints than in reality, because there they were viewed through the idealizing filter of the enthusiasm of that age. In the prince, they were transformed into the very ideal of art, an ideal that invested the work of art with an almost metaphysical significance.